This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic. topic In the margin of a book. Written as a gift during the pandemic by Kim Fay for two of her closest friends, Love and Saffron is an epistolary novel that begins with a fan letter and quickly evolves into a lasting friendship. Faye says she not only wrote the book for her two friends, but she was also inspired by them as she created her two main characters. The novel is filled with wit, charm, and great food. And I recently spoke with Kim Faye about how love and saffron served as a balm for her during the pandemic and how that balm extends to those who read it. I'm Beth Golay. This is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Can you give our listeners an overview of your novel, Love and Saffron? Sure. We're back in the early 1960s, and Joan, who's a 27-year-old budding food writer in Los Angeles, she writes a fan letter to Imogen, who is a 59-year-old magazine columnist um, who lives on an island near Seattle. Joan also includes a packet of saffron from her travels, uh, the saffron in the title of the book, with a recipe. And Imogen responds to this letter and a correspondence begins to flow back and forth between them. And over the next few years, through these letters, they embark on this journey um, of culinary exploration, personal transformation, and it, and it really builds a soul-deep friendship between the two women. And this might seem odd because I am, <laughs> I'm jumping all the way to the back of the book. That's fine. As you mentioned, Joan becomes acquainted with Imogen when she writes the fan letter. And yes. it's after reading Imogen's column, Letters from the Island. Yes. And you wrote in your author's note that during the editorial process, you felt it was important to know what was in that column that inspired mm-hmm. Joan to reach out to her, but that it wouldn't be included in the book, except maybe, I mean, it's included as part of the author's note. Yes. So I'm curious, you know, when did you know actually what was in that column that Imogen wrote? And do you think that allowing the readers to know what was in that column affords them any clearer insight into Imogen's character? I did not know. I mean, obviously, I had a general sense of what was in the column because the book launches off of that. But the column itself was not written until the editing process. And the funny part was, was when I sat down to write the column, it just flowed out, even though... I didn't have something in the back of my head. I didn't have a sketch or anything, but it just, it came out almost fully formed. And I think there are a few things the column offers. One, I think it just gives us a little more of Imogen. I think it also gives that reader the the little gift of why did this book start? But when we put it at the beginning, it wasn't, we wanted that personal leaping off that writing a fan letter is. And, you know, people of a certain age, myself included, have written fan letters, you know, and there's, there's something of yourself that you just put on the page when you're writing a fan letter, when you're writing to somebody for the first time. And we didn't want to take away from the immediacy of that with the column. But at the same time, we really wanted to give readers just a little bit more of how the story came about and who Imogen was. So as you mentioned, Love and Saffron is an epistolary novel. And, you know, 
it jumps right in with Joan writing that fan letter to Imogen. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not entirely epistolary, though. You include a column by Joan that she mm-hmm. writes later in the book and that column by Imogen in the author's note, as well as the third person selection in part two. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to me about your decision to tell the story through those different forms? It was, I, I'm not very satisfying answering this for writers because I didn't make a conscious decision to write the book in letters. It was how the book flowed out of me. I started this book the day after Los Angeles went on lockdown during the pandemic. I had not been working on this book. This book just popped out and said, please write me right now. And when I sat down and started writing this, the letter form was what came out. And it was a really beautiful way to build this friendship between these women. You know, letters are just a slower pace. It's a more intimate experience in many ways. But when it came to the point in the book where there's going to be a shift in what is happening between the two women and how they're interacting, again, the book took me by the hand and led me into the third person. And I actually tried writing a couple letters for that section but it just didn't feel right. I know that writing is about craft and intentionality, but there's also that real important aspect of, does this feel right? And it didn't. And so that's when I wrote it in third person, that felt true to the story. You know, despite the significant age difference between Mm -hmm. Joan and Imogen, they develop a very close relationship that Joan describes as closer to that of sisters. And I've read about your friendship with Janet Brown and Barbara Mm -hmm. Hansen. So can you tell us about them and how they inspired you to write Love and Saffron? Most definitely. So Janet, um, she's an essayist, Janet Brown, and she and I worked together at the Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle in the 90s. And then we went our separate ways. I moved to teach English in Vietnam. She moved to teach English in Thailand and we started corresponding. And now Janet and I, there's a 20 year age difference between us. So when we met, I was in my 20s and she was in her 40s, which is a big gap at those those times in a woman's life. But as we wrote to one another, obviously we had the shared experience of being in these new places the correspondence went so much deeper than that. And it continued. And well, I have some damage with my hand. I can't handwrite anymore. Janet and I still write letters through email that are true, proper, full letters. We sit down, we take time. I feel as if I'm going back into the letter writing experience whenever we write to each other. And we've been writing to each other now for, see if I could do my math here, 25 years. So the way that our relationship grew through letters was something I really wanted to capture in this book. And this book, I should say, was written for Janet and Barbara, these two friends. It was not written for publication. It was written to be a gift during the time of the pandemic, something that they could read in an afternoon that would be just a a gentle balm for them. Barbara, there's a similar age gap between us. Barbara was a pioneering LA food writer. And I'm I'm just a cheater because there's really not much of Joan that isn't Barbara. (laughs) I made up the romance, the romance and the personal aspect of it. But 
the whole story, I mean, I have been looking for a decade for a way to tell Barbara's story. And I'm not necessarily a biographer. So that didn't make sense to me. I was looking for all these other ways. And when this book popped up and started pouring out, Barbara's story just gushed through it. And she's read it. And obviously it wouldn't be out in the world if she didn't approve of it because I used so much. But Barbara has this insatiable curiosity about food. She has an Instagram page, Table Conversation. And if you follow her, you're like, how does this woman have the time and energy? And still, after decades, this passion for food. So that you can hear how excited I am about <laughs> this woman and you can see how she ended up being a main character in the novel. And I understand you also received some inspiration from your great aunt. I did. I did. I wanted the Imogen character to be a Pacific Northwest woman. I wanted her to be one of those people who grew up, you know, during this time period, you know, I have pictures of my great aunt hunting elk. I have pictures of her, you know, down on the beach clamming. I have pictures of her. She was, she was a strong woman. She was a no-nonsense woman, but she was also an incredibly loving woman. And the cabin that's in the book is a real cabin. It's a real place. It's where I spent weekends when I was a child on Camino Island. It was my great aunt and uncle's cabin. And, you know, they were very practical Northwest people. Yet I have this copy of the New Yorker from 1971 <laughs> that I don't know how I managed to take it home with me when I was three or four or five years old, but I have this copy of the New Yorker that came from her cabin. And I just, I remember thinking that here is a woman who lives in a kind of a constrained time and place, but who had a larger curiosity about the world. And that's really something I wanted to develop in the novel is how a lot of times our worlds don't grow because we just don't know. And then when we're introduced to things, we have that opportunity to learn and to have a larger worldview. That kind of takes me into my next question, because I noticed in your bio that you are the creator editor of a series of guidebooks on Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to me about the similarities and differences between, you know, traditional travel and traveling through food or books or letters? Ooh, that's a tricky question. Obviously, when you are physically traveling, all of your senses are being triggered. At least it was for me. I remember the first time I went to Thailand, I didn't sleep for three days. And then I fell asleep during the middle of a kickboxing match because I <laughs> was so tired, but I was afraid to close my eyes for fear of missing anything. It was smell. It was sight. It was touch. It was taste. It was sound. And so when you're writing about travel, I think it's really important to hit the senses you can describe a place, you can tell people about a place, but it's just essential to make sure that you are wakening the reader's various senses so that they can experience the place while they're reading. In the book, we see quite a few serious themes running throughout, including interracial relationships, the role of women in the 1960s, unplanned mm -hmm. pregnancy and abortion, even PTSD. Mm -hmm. So as you explored the characters of Imogen and Joan and people in their surrounding orbits, were these themes planned or did they arise naturally? 
not one of these themes was planned. I, a lot of it, I didn't realize until after the book had been written that I'd actually touched on this, but I think by writing a story and staying true to a story, it was inevitable that these themes would come out or that they would be addressed. Nothing is you know, tackled as a big issue, but for example, women's roles, these were two women Joan is a young woman who's trying to find her way and she wants to write. And it's the 1960s. If you don't address the difficulties of that, then you're not being true to the story. I think the interracial relationship comes from, I've lived in LA for 20 years and LA is not one culture and it's not two cultures. It is a true microcosm of the world. And I am following the story again. I think that a lot of this was just in my subconscious. I have to say that because it would come out and it would feel true. And then I would follow it to see where it led. But I think it's just also interesting how many of these issues are still issues today. How many things I was writing about that I really didn't realize I was creating some parallels between then and now. I knew I was doing that when it came to kind of a time of darkness, because I was very well aware that I was writing about how the one thing that can save us at any point in time when it becomes very dark is human connection and our relationships. But I think a lot of the other issues came out because they're still right on the surface in this day and age. I'm curious about the relationship between Joan and her mother, because it wasn't surprising necessarily, but I did find it unexpected for some reason. Did you have an inspiration for for their relationship? That is Barbara Hansen's mother. (laughs) That is her relationship with her mother. And I always found that such a fascinating and beautiful relationship. I also found her mother absolutely fascinating. You know, she was this woman who came from the Midwest on her own to teach English in LA in that must have been the 1920s. And I believe she was Danish and she was very much, you know, that stalwart Scandinavian woman. But at the same time, she was walking her little girl down the road to eat Mexican food when she was four years old. And Barbara tells the story of driving with her mother and they had stopped at a Japanese restaurant and there was this salad, this cucumber salad, and her mother just had to know how to make it and got the recipe. And then it became a staple in their household. You know, whenever Barbara described her mother, again, there's a woman who needs her story told. And Barbara also had this very beautiful close relationship with her mom. So I wanted to capture that as well. What is your relationship with food? I <laughs> I hear that you think you're not a great cook, but you're not ta- a talk great to me cook. about that. <laughs> it's, it's so funny because my relationship with food is that I love what food does. I love how food connects us. As I've mentioned, I love that, you know, I love dinner parties. I love all of these things, but I'm a more of a practical cook. I need recipes. I'm not incredibly creative in the kitchen. I get impatient when I'm prepping. My sister's an incredible cook and everything she makes not only tastes perfect, but looks perfect. We have a family cake when she makes it, it looks 
amazing when I make it, we call it earthquake cake because it looks like there was an <laughs> earthquake and the frosting is just everywhere. But I still love being in the kitchen and I still love spending time trying new recipes. Just some people have the knack and some people don't. I don't have the knack, but I have the love. I'll take it. I'll take that. So, yeah. You mentioned earlier that you were a bookseller at Elliott mm -hmm. Bay Book Company in the late 80s and early 90s. So you have a kinship of sorts with independent booksellers who nominated Love and Saffron as their number one pick for February. And it seems that they agree with you that this is um, the same nourishing balm for the reader that it provided for you as you wrote it during mm -hmm. the pandemic. Can you talk to me about Love and Saffron as nourishment for the reader and writer and also what it means to you that so many booksellers nominated your book for the Indie Next list? Well, I think one of the reasons I was able to write a book that was that felt like nourishment, someone's described it as a big hug. Um, was because I filled it with the pieces of my life that I love, whether it was, as I said, my correspondence with Janet, my friendship with Barbara. One of the things I really wanted to address in this book was women's friendships. I'm kind of over right now, all of the stories and TV shows and everything where women are just at each other. And just, you know, there's always this, some kind of cruelty or aggression, or I just, I didn't want that. I mean, my female friends nurture and uplift me. During the pandemic, they were the rock that kept me steady. They're there for me. And I think we're all connected because we're just made of the same substance. And I wanted to create these women in this novel who are made of the same substance and that's how they came together. And I feel that by portraying a friendship that's very honest, um, it has its ups and downs, but it's, it's just truly genuine and tender, that that is what is resonating with people. As for having it chosen by, I can start crying again because independent <laughs> book selling, Elliott Bay Book Company changed my life. I became who I am today at that bookstore because of the people I worked with, the books I was introduced to. It shaped me. It, it, it exploded the world open for me. And to have independent booksellers who are still, they're the anchors of our communities. To have a bookseller read your book and then share it with other people, it just makes my heart sing. I can't I, I become speechless because it was the one accolade. If, if you could say, okay, here's a thousand accolades, you only get to pick one. That would be the one. That was the one. And I, I am so, so honored by that, by being the Indie Next pick for this month. This book has a genuine heart. And the fact that it's connecting with so many people already, that's worth writing it in and of itself. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you and I really appreciate your time. Oh, Beth, thank you. This was a real pleasure to talk to you today. That was Kim Fay, author of the book, Love and Saffron, which was published by G.P. Putnam Sons. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.